Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wooden. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history, one from me and one from former host Tracy V. Wilson. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christopher Hasiotis. Your regular host, Tracy V. Wilson, is out this week, so thanks for having me. It's December 10th, and one of the biggest heists in Japanese history happened on this day in 1968. Just under 300 million yen was stolen from a secure vehicle outside Tokyo. In 1968, that amount was worth around 820,000 U.S. dollars. Adjusted for inflation, that'd be like stealing the equivalent of $6 million in today's money. Here's how it all went down. On December 10th, four employees of the Nihon Shintaku Ginkgo Bank were transporting this massive sum of cash. Security was tight as a bank manager had just days prior received threats of explosives in the mail. The money was intended to be used as bonuses for factory workers employed by technology conglomerate Toshiba. The vehicle was traveling through Fuchu, the city in the greater metro area of Tokyo where the factory was located. A policeman riding a white Yamaha motorcycle stopped the car, just about a block's distance from the factory gate. The policeman informed the crew in the car that their bank manager's house had been bombed, and police had reason to believe the car they were driving was likewise wired with dynamite. As the four employees exited the car, the policeman said he'd examined the underside of the vehicle. While beneath the car, he discreetly set off a flare. The four employees saw smoke and flames, 
And when they heard the man, whom they believed to be a policeman, yelling for them to run for safety, that's exactly what they did. He, on the other hand, hopped in the car loaded with cash and just drove off. The vehicle was later discovered abandoned without either the cash or the driver within. The ensuing investigation saw the Japanese police go all in. More than 170,000 police officers and hundreds of detectives were involved in the search for the thief. Police collected more than 120 pieces of evidence at the crime scene, including the thief's abandoned police motorcycle, which turned out to have been painted to look official, but wasn't. The security employees described the culprit, sketches were made and circulated, and the hunt was on. More than 100,000 people were interviewed in 1968 for the case. The first suspect was the 19-year-old son of a motorcycle policeman, but just five days after the robbery, the teenager died of potassium cyanide poisoning, raising suspicions. The death, however, was ultimately ruled a suicide, and he wasn't implicated. A year later, at the end of 1969, police arrested a 26-year-old man on an unrelated charge. He resembled the composite image created of the thief, but he too was ultimately exonerated when he was able to prove he was taking a test at the time of the robbery. On November 15, 1975, just months before the seven-year statute of limitations was set to expire, police arrested a friend of the 19-year-old first suspect. They'd found large amounts of unexplained cash in his possession. In the end, nothing came of that inquiry either, and the statute of limitations on criminal charges was reached in December of 1975. A separate period of civil liability expired in 1988. After that date, the thief would not have been at risk of any legal repercussions, he could legally benefit from profits from the crime. He could have written a book, for instance, or sold his story to a TV station. A 1999 investigation by the newspaper Shukan Hoseki identified a potential suspect then in his 50s. However, other publications found significant flaws with that theory, and it was ultimately abandoned. As of the recording of this episode, half a century later, the case remains unsolved. The culprit has never come forward, and the money remains lost. For years, it was the largest robbery in Japan's history. Most recently, it was surpassed by a 2004 robbery of 500 million yen, which was then surpassed by a 2011 robbery where two masked men stole 604 million yen, or about $7.4 million. But the 1968 robbery, the 300 million yen robbery as it's known, remains the most notorious in the public's memory. The original crime has inspired numerous books, articles, comics, and TV shows as well as the 2000 film Sanoku and Jiken. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever else you like to find your podcasts. Come back tomorrow and we'll learn about a royal trial. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, 
Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was December 10th, 1907. The Brown Dog Riots, a series of riots over the practice of conducting surgery on live animals, peaked when a crowd of medical students marched through London in support of the practice. Operating on living animals for experimental purposes is known as vivisection. Vivisection, used for scientific research and instructing medical students, was common in the UK in the early 20th century. At the same time, there was plenty of opposition to the practice. Anti-vivisection groups formed and attempted to limit or abolish surgery on live animals. Among other arguments, people who opposed vivisection accused researchers of disregarding the suffering of the animals they experimented on. Many anti-vivisectionists were also suffragists. In 1876, 
Parliament passed the Cruelty to Animals Act, which said that experiments that caused animals pain could only be conducted when necessary and that animals had to be anesthetized if they were to undergo such an experiment. It also required animals to be used in only one experiment and killed when the study was over, with stipulations. But in 1902, a brown terrier was anesthetized and dissected alive by physiologist Dr. Edward Starling in front of an audience of medical students at University College in London. The dog lived through the experiment and was kept in a cage until his next procedure. In February of 1903, the terrier was used in a couple more procedures conducted by Starling, another physiologist named William Bayliss, and medical student Henry Dale. The dog was cut open to inspect the results of the previous experiment, and the dog's neck was cut open to expose its salivary glands. The experiment was not successful, and Dale killed the dog by stabbing a knife through his heart. Two Swedish anti-vivisectionist activists, Lizeline of Hagaby and Lisa Hartau, were attending medical school in London and had been going to see Starling and Bayliss's lectures. They published their notes on the experiments on and death of the brown terrier. Since the dog was used in more than one experiment, the procedures were in violation of the Cruelty to Animals Act. Lawyer Stephen Coleridge publicly decried the vivisection of the brown terrier, and Bayliss sued Coleridge for libel. They went to trial in November of 1903, and Bayliss came out on top. But the controversy continued. Anti-vivisectionists raised money to build a monument to the dog that was killed in the experiment. The memorial was unveiled in the borough of Battersea in September of 1906. The plaque on the statue of the brown dog read, in memory of the brown terrier dog done to death in the laboratories of University College in February 1903. After having endured vivisection extending over more than two months and having been handed over from one vivisector to another till death came to his release. Also, in memory of the 232 dogs vivisected at the same place during the year 1902. Men and women of England, how long shall these things be? This upset medical students who supported animal experimentation and vivisection. Their efforts to destroy the statue turned into riots, which peaked on December 10, 1907, when medical students gathered to try to take the memorial down. The protests devolved into fighting with police officers, and rioting continued over the next several months. After much debate over the statue, which not only inspired rioting, but also required official resources for protection, the statue was taken down in March of 1910. It's been suggested that the conflict was intensified by the fact that so many of the medical students were men who opposed suffrage, and so many of the anti-vivisectionists were women and suffragists. A new, also controversial statue of the dog was unveiled in London in 1985. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Looking for content a little more sophisticated than cat memes in your feed? Connect with us on social media at T-D-I-H-C podcast. If you prefer something a little bit more formal, then you can write us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I hope you liked this show. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.